Thank you. Please be seated. We are studying, we are just uh, beginning and starting at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 11 today. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, I set the stage a little last time, but uh, today we jump into the passage. We're going to study Hebrews 11 at um, a little slower pace, considering this uh, history of what it means to live by faith. All of Hebrews, I think, in one way or another, is just a sermon on uh, living by faith, pressing on in faith. And uh, here in this chapter, we find a number of notable illustrations of it. Uh, by, by the way, at the end of this uh, letter, he says, I've written to you a brief word of exhortation, a brief word of exhortation. It takes uh, a little under 50 minutes to read. That's a brief word of, ex- of exhortation. So I hope that you appreciate how much briefer your minister is, at least occasionally. Okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 Um, After just saying that we need to live by faith, um, we come now to 11 verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, even in these three verses, we have a whole world of struggle. We have a lifetime of seeking to live not by what is seen, but by what is unseen. We confess this is a profound difficulty for creatures like us. We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that in searching out these examples of all that have gone before, that we might learn new courage, new wisdom, indeed, have greater measures of faith on which to draw, that we might glorify you in our calling. We desire not to um, draw back, but to press on, to be those, as it's written, who believe unto the saving of the soul, for Christ's sake. Amen. On the day of Pentecost, thousands of Jews arose uh, that morning, not anticipating to do anything else than to go up to worship at the feast, and yet... On that morning, they believed in Jesus. As we said this morning, they had their lives changed, root and branch. Thousands that day became Christian Jews, and thousands more soon joined them, even many of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. These Jewish Christians still went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They still went up to the city on the times of feasting. And they yearned for their brethren to believe in their Messiah. But as the years passed, the majority of Jews remained unbelieving. In fact, they grew more and more hostile. In city after city, they had to leave the synagogues, shaking the dust off their feet. The churches became more and more filled by Gentiles. And soon these Jewish believers began like feeling like a fish out of water. They, they were strangers, even in their own church. They were weary, and they grew discouraged. They felt the difficulty of walking by faith rather by sight, trusting in what is unseen rather than what is seen. I mean, as the book explains, they missed the temple. They missed the services. They missed these sacrifices. 
They missed their dear high priest. It was all so meaningful. It was all so visible. And here they were now meeting in some shabby little building, singing with no instruments, reading the scriptures, listening to a man talk. That was it. There was no more glory. There was no beauty. They were themselves perhaps yearning to go back. And Hebrews deals with the struggle of faith. Something that we all need to hear. Today, we're not facing the same kind of struggle. But you know that we also do face the pressures of discouragement, of feeling more and more out of place where we live. We, we know what it's like to face trials and become weary because of them. We know that feeling of being excluded or marginalized because of what we believe in our society. We know what it's like to draw back a little and say, I, I just want to fit in as much as possible. And so for us, too, this book has a great encouragement about what it means to walk boldly by faith rather than drawing back to walk by sight. This chapter is all about faith. And I just have two verses that we're going to be looking at, really, two questions I'll ask. The first, what is faith? What is faith? Um, This chapter is about faith, but even though it, it, it sounds like a definition, this is, this is not what I'm about to read you, not really a comprehensive definition of faith. This, this tells us virtually nothing about being saved by faith or justifying faith that Paul makes so much of elsewhere. This chapter, though, tells us all about the power of faith and walking by faith. And faith in this chapter is extremely active. By faith, Noah built. Abraham obeyed. Going out, he didn't know where. Joseph spoke. It's all very dynamic. By faith, people walked through the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho fell flat. Rahab welcomed the spies. By faith, some were victorious in battle, but others had to endure torture unto death in the hope that God would raise them from a better, to a better resurrection. Faith in this chapter is very vigorous. It's moving mountains and gaining victories and suffering bravely. People by faith are hanging on God, relying on Him, taking Him at His word, trusting in Him when there's no hope to be found. Faith here is looking to God, pleading with God, reverently arguing with God, inquiring of Him, praising Him, pursuing Him, serving Him, obeying Him, and longing for Him in a dry and dusty land. This is faith in Hebrews 11. And what all the examples that are going to follow have in common is that God's people from the very beginning have had to recognize that what is unseen is much, much more important than what is seen. This chapter is all about walking by faith as opposed to walking by sight. Okay? That's the key, especially as we begin here. Walking by faith rather than by sight. And so we begin at verse 1. Some of your translations say something like this. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith uh, being sure and certain. Very subjective. That that is a possibility. Uh, The church has historically read it objectively, like my New King James has. 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is real substance and evidence of unseen things. Well, what does that even mean? Um, How can faith be substance and evidence? One writer explains it this way. From the examples of faith lifted up in this chapter, it seems clear that what's not primarily in view is that we possess assurance or confidence, but rather how faith has a way of making the future present and the unseen visible. Or Arthur Pink uses this analogy of two men standing on the deck of a ship, and they're looking in the same direction. One sees absolutely nothing, just the water to the horizon. But the other man sees a steamer. The difference is the first man is looking with his unaided eye, and the second man is peering through a telescope. And faith is like a telescope that brings future promises of God into present focus, which takes things that other people are not able to see and makes them very plain to our vision, bringing them into focus. Um, Faith enables us to see things from an unseen world. Or uh, John Owen comments, Faith gives the things that we hope for real existence in the minds and souls of those who believe. It gives to the soul a taste of the goodness of the things promised, an experience of their power. Faith really communicates to us the things that are hoped for. So you see what he's saying? Um, And we, we could read it either way, but faith is not just a mere persuasion that things that we hope for are are real in heaven. Faith is what takes something in heaven and makes it present in this world to us, real, substantive, something that we experience, although it hasn't happened yet or it isn't there for the eye to see. Or you can think of how it, it worked with those three Hebrew young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they refused to bow down to a golden idol, which caused an angry king to threaten to throw them into a blazing furnace. And their response shows that by faith, they regarded their unseen God as more real and more substantial than the enraged emperor before them, threatening to roast them alive. Faith is what gives substance to unseen realities, which supplies evidence to what God's promise will surely fulfill. Faith applies the reality of the unseen world to this visible world. So it's not really so much of a big difference in how you translate it. Um, uh, it, There's a huge exegetical debate. I'm I'm not really trying to get into it. I'm just saying that that, uh, either way, it's not just mere wish and persuasion. Um, Faith makes those things real. And why is this aspect of faith so important to make the invisible visible by the eyes of faith? Because these Jewish believers are considering how nice it was going up to the temple and all those ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifices 
and the whole Old Covenant system as it's offered, the sacrifices offered day after day. It meant so much to them to have the substance and the evidence of their religion all around them. The demonstration that their sins are forgiven in the daily sacrifices. There was so much comfort to be drawn. There was so, so much encouragement to be felt. And Hebrews says, no, no. Understand that what is unseen is the reality. And what is seen and visible is only the copy. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this temple, these, cer- these ceremonies, all these things, he says in chapter 8, th- those things are just a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. Right? Those priests, day after day, offering the same sacrifices, which in fact can't take away sin, are only serving, we read, at a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses had been instructed to make the tabernacle, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. No, the true tabernacle is not what's seen. It's what's unseen. That true high priest is not the man there in the linen garb. The true priest serving at the true sanctuary who's offered his blood once for all to take away sin on the true altar, that blood of sprinkling, they're all unseen above. That's the reality. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. And that's what introduces this chapter to us. We are brought into what's called the Hall of Faith, not just that we might be able to have some Sunday school heroes set before us and to have their great stories retold, but to realize that this great list of heroes had to live without sight. But that faith made all the difference and moved mountains in this world. So, what is faith? Well, faith is being sure of what you hope for, a certain of what you do not see, or perhaps it's clearer, faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, having the real value of the unseen in the world. Okay, so that's how this is introduced to us in verse 1. Now, before we then jump into this list of Sunday school heroes, those uh, who he describes in verse 2 as those elders, the, the people in elder times that had a good testimony by living by faith, you would anticipate that he would start off talking about them. But I, I think kind of surprisingly, he makes, he makes this comment about creation first in verse 3. By faith, not a list of one of the elders, but it says by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Referring, of course, to God's spoken word as he created the heavens and the earth. As we repeatedly read in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, then God said. We sing it in Psalm 33. The Lord by his word has created the heavens, and he by his breath made the stars come to be. He spoke, it was done, and continues to stand fast. It all was accomplished when he gave command. What is more important, the word or the world? 
That's a very practical question for these struggling Jewish Christians. Which is more real, more substantial, more important? The word or the world? This is the first of 19 uses of by faith in this chapter. All the others relate to heroes who trusted in God, but this is different. The worlds were framed by the word of God. The things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So I ask you if what is seen was made by what is unseen, which is more real, which is more important, which is more substantial, the word that made the world. Matter is not eternal. God is eternal. His word is eternal. And you understand now how this undermines the desire of those Jews to go back to what is visible, what is seen. They wanted to go back to this great glory and grandeur and show. And this book says from beginning to end, that is not ultimate reality. It is a poor temporary copy that's going away. And if God's word is what brought this great being into existence, this, these worlds, this existence that you enjoy here, if his word did this, then you know that his promises can be trusted to you. That's the meaning. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. If his word did this, then his word is far more important than anything that this world has. And this is something that we've lost, especially in the 150 years in which uh, Darwin's origin of species has had such an effect upon the mind of, uh, of man. Um, it's traditional for nearly every worship service in many Dutch Reformed churches to begin with a certain sentence. Psalm 124, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know the connection? Why does it matter that our hope is in the one who made all this? It's shorthand for what I've been telling you. The God whose world this is, who made such a great and glorious and wise and good creation, by the word of his power, is one that we can trust and hope in. The one who can rule it in righteousness and prove to be the certain hope of his people. Psalm 121, a pilgrim worshiper lifts his eyes to the hills where he's liable to find danger on his long journey. But whence shall come his aid, he asks, my safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth hath made. And again, what's the connection? The God that made this, if he is my God, what do I need to fear? His word, my hope, secures. He's promised good to me. You see the connection. Psalm 115. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is why faith is so important and why we must begin at the beginning. Before we go and look at the first hero of faith, we need to remember that the one who made the world by the word of his power is our God, and that that is more important than anything that we can see. 
Or you can compare what the church prayed in Acts chapter 4 when they threatened them never to preach in the name of Jesus again. O Lord, you are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Look on their threats and grant to your service with all boldness and so forth. So we, we tend to forget when creation is made merely a matter of maybe scientific debate that what is actually at stake is the Lord's ownership and righteous rule of history and the confidence and joy that we can place on him, that the one who made it by the word of his power is able to fulfill that word in our lives. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not things not seen, for these worlds were framed by his word, the things seen by what is invisible. If God did not make the world, it's hard to believe that he rules it or that he controls something that was not his to begin with. It's hard to believe that he is bringing about good purposes or able to help us more than drying our tears. But if this is our Father's world, then the battle is not yet done, and Jesus who died shall be, what? And heaven and earth be one. You can't begin to have any real confidence in this world or understand what's going on here, world history, or God himself, Unless you start at the beginning, we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. See how much hangs on this first principle. All right, so that's a basic exposition of the text. I haven't done too much in the way of application here because I wanted to try to cover this and set it before you. You understand what's being said, what faith is, and what this has to do with creation. Why does he bring that up? Well, because what is seen is not as important as what is unseen. This visible world created by an all-powerful word. Okay, but of course, uh, we can hardly read this passage without thinking about some of the struggles today, right? By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Is that what we believe? Um, well, this, this is a, a struggle, as I mentioned earlier, the struggle of our generation. Paul, when he went out to preach the gospel to the, to the, to the pagans, he invariably began here with God, your good creator, whom you are ignoring, he goes on to say. But Acts 14, we, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless idols to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, Right? Um, he, he takes it as self-evident that the God who made all of these things is far greater and more glorious than some little wooden-fashioned worthless idols. Acts 17, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and determine their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. You don't have to read my Bible. You could read your own poets and come to this conclusion that uh, we are his offspring. Well, um, I could, I could uh, give you several other examples. Let's just mention one more from Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood 
by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that men are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, um, he goes on to say, this is why all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The God whom they knew, they have rejected. They became godless, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They refused to see the light of the glory of their Creator. And that's why, uh, even though Paul expects them to know this, and he wants to resurface this truth by preaching to their conscience that God made the world and all things that are in it, he is able to speak to those who have turned aside from this Maker to worthless idols and to reprove them for their foolishness. Well, today we don't have little idols sitting around in every house uh, um, uh, room for worship, but we we do have uh, a number of other people that have become darkened by saying the same things, right? Many uh, scientists today um, do not have that faith by which they are convinced that the world was framed by the Word of God and the things that are seen by the things that are unseen. I'd like to mention to you briefly just how dark those great scientists and scholars have gotten. Um, the Darwinian scholar William Provine you know, used to be up at, uh, at Cornell, just passed away though. He says, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views he says. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, there is no meaning in life, and there is no free will for humans either. Um, Bertrand Russell, one of the more brilliant uh, mathematicians and atheists, summarizes, we are the product of causes that had no provision of the end they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our minds are just the outcome of occasional collocations of atoms. And only in the firm foundation of unyielding despair can our soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. I have several other quotations. I'm just going to leave it at that. What these scientists are saying is that if you have no creator to worship, then there is no image of God to honor in my neighbor, no judgment to fear, no glory to inherit, and furthermore, you are not truly free until you admit this. Only in the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Christianity says that this uh, worship, love, honor, and expectation of the future from our Creator are actually the most fundamental rock-bottom realities of true living, apart from which our most basic human instincts and intuitions go astray. You are not truly free until you know the purpose of your creation. Without this, man has no meaning, no joy, no freedom, no ultimate expectation man becomes, to borrow one humanist phrase, a useless passion.
Well, so we have this struggle, just as they had a struggle. Some people look at what is made and they think this is ultimate. This is the most important thing. This is ultimate reality. We, by faith, must look at this same reality and say, isn't it patently obvious that a much greater intelligence has been at work and has formed these worlds by the word of his power? Everywhere we look, we are confronted by the most dazzling beauty, skillful design, and subtle wisdom. Um, You you don't need to read the Bible to get this. You can read Ranger Rick magazine, which each month tells us of the most astonishing creatures, like the European water spider, which, kids, I realize there's been a lot of philosophy in this sermon, but let's come back to something a little more concrete here. The European water spider. They live at the bottom of lakes, but they breathe fresh air. How do they do that? Do they breathe it out of the water? Oh, no. They make their own habitat at the bottom of a lake. This little spider somehow knows how to do a somersault on the surface of the water and catch a bubble of air and to hold that little bubble of air over its its breathing holes holes in the middle of its abdomen while, while it swims down to the bottom of the lake, still breathing that air, and begins to spin a silk web underwater, yes, among the weeds. And it gets rid of the rest of that bubble and goes up, down, up, down, up, down, building its web, bringing down bubble after bubble after bubble of air until it makes this little underground dome where it can live and eat and mate. And besides all the special adaptations that allow it to do this, being a former programmer, I'm, ama- I'm amazed at this, this co- enormously complex behavior is presumably programmed into a DNA molecule, right? How does it know? I mean, I suppose it's possible that God could just tell all these creatures what to do, but my bet is God has programmed them to behave in such a way. The spider doesn't have to learn to do all these things. It's born knowing instinctively. I don't know how God does it, but somehow he is... He is a programmer far greater than anything we know. And how does God make a mother bird know how to care for its young? You just go down the list. God has been pleased to reveal himself in a breathtaking way throughout creation. Now, you say, what, what, what do the scientists think? Well, they, they, look, at, they look to these things and they, they think uh, this, this is uh, just all developed from you know, so, somehow these billions of of, of, uh, of molecules uh, came together to form DNA and that somehow they continue to evolve and they evolved in extremely complex ways. For example, you think about the eye. This eye supposedly evolved not once, not twice, um, but many, many times. Cosmos magazine tells the story this way. Here's looking at you, squid. Look into the eye of an octopus, and you'll find yourself staring back at an eye not so different from your own. And yet we are about as closely related to an octopus as we are to clams. The octopus evolved its complex camera eye independently of vertebrates like us. In fact, biologists estimate the eye 
has independently evolved more than 50 times. Yeah, it's just something that happens in this world. Now, the fact is, this was a lot easier to believe in Darwin's day when we were talking about bird finches and they didn't know anything about a cell, just a little bit of plasm. They didn't know all these things, right? Um, Nowadays, we we learn more and more and more and more about the complexity and, frankly, just the sheer brilliance of God's work. Um, We see the fine-tuning at work in the universe. What's astonishing now is that science, of all things, is bringing us back to recognize that the world has come into being through this logos. Peer-reviewed papers are now published, at least in uh, astrophysicist journals, detailing the extraordinary fine-tuning of the universe, that's their language, and wondering how we can understand what they also call the anthropic principle, the fact that this whole universe seems not only to be designed, but designed for anthropos, for man. Many scientists are, are, are just astonished at the very, 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 very precise fine-tuning that seems to break all their expectations. I, I listened to one uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist saying, when we realized this, it was spooky, like religion had snuck into the back door of physics. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, unwilling to give up on his atheism, is still holding on to the idea of a multiverse, not to confuse things, but says, okay, look, there must be an infinite number of universes out there somewhere, and this just happens to be the one where there's very unusual properties that you can have elements and support life and and so forth, right? Or he had a a symposium just before COVID up in New York at the National Museum of Natural History, and he said, you know, maybe this is just a simulation. Probably 50-50, we're living in a simulation inside somebody's computer because it can't just happen. This is one of the world's top physicists, right? Okay, well, um, fair enough. He's got his ideas... And we are reminded that it is by faith that we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God and that the things that are seen are not made of the things that are visible. This is the explanation that we are able to grasp and it makes sense of our lives, of the world around us, and it allows us to go and to look at the glory of the stars and to rejoice that the one who made all these things is the God we have faith in. And the one who is able to do all this by the word of his power is surely able to fulfill his word to us. That's the point. God's creation invests our world and human life with terrible and wonderful meaning. It assures you and me that God cares, that he's not put love and longing in our hearts and moral judgment in our conscience to mock us, but to provide us with an understanding of himself and the confidence that as we put ourselves into his loving hands, that he will not only be our maker and our redeemer, but a father to his people. And that means that in good times and bad, just like these saints of old found, we can wait upon him, who will surely in his time fulfill every last word in his steadfast love. And as we look through the universe, we are able to gain more and more confidence. As we go down the hall of faith, we are able to see more and more people who were able to live according to what they had not yet seen. We are to look one more place, we read at the end of chapter 12. After looking to all these things, we must look to Jesus, that author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. We must consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest we become weary and discouraged. Okay, yeah, the people there are weary. The people there are discouraged. They are outside the camp. They are suffering. And, they, and, and the author at the end of this hall of faith says, you know, you've got to go see Jesus because he's outside the camp there with you, brothers and sisters. He suffers yet in his body. And if you look at the object of your faith and the goal of all that has gone before, you will not be tempted to go back. He had to suffer outside the city. He had to bear the cross and endure the shame. But he has sat down at the right hand of God. And the remedy for these weary, discouraged Christians who miss all that was seen is to be reminded of the supreme reality and the supremacy of their Lord, yet unseen, who nevertheless is waiting for them above. His word shall not fail. If it made all of this, it will surely fulfill its purpose in your life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do believe that Christ is more valuable than anything to be found in this world, that even the reproaches of Christ are far better than all the treasures of Egypt that can be seen. Everywhere we look, we are reminded of your exceptional power, wisdom, and glory, and we pray that you would forgive us for being so dull, for doubting what is so clear to our eyes. You are a wonderful and wise God. We pray that you would give us confidence and assurance that this faith that we have been discussing would become in our lives substance and evidence to bring the reality of things unseen into our souls, into our sight, that we would be able to walk by this faith and no longer by the things which are seen. And we pray that you would bless these dear brothers and sisters who, like these saints of old, are having to wander, are having to suffer, are having to be out of place, are having to wonder where you are in such a world as this. Oh, our Father, open our eyes. To-